Well, welcome all you wiretappers back here at Studio Gangland Wire. I have a show for you today, a little different look at organized crime history. Now, we know there was a big uh, Jewish uh, segment, shall we say, of La Cosa Nostra. I'm not really delved into it. Everybody knows the name of Mayor Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, but there was a lot more people, especially connected connected to uh, murder and corporate. So I have here a man who's written uh, an insider's, if you will, look at that early um, Jewish faction of uh, especially the New York City organized crime and murder incorporated, Alan Geik. Alan, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me on Gangland Wire, Gary. And now, Alan, you you have quite an interesting career here, as well as the way you grew up. We'll talk more about what happened to you growing up or what your family was like. But you've got a novel out there, Glenn Fittich Inn. Uh, you produced Grammy-nominated music in, in the Latin genre. Uh, you have hosted radio shows yourself in, in Los Angeles. You have edited films. Uh, you have what, you've got all that creative stuff. You also have a master's from the London School of Economics and Political Science. That was another lifetime. <laughs> and you've written articles. You wrote articles uh, uh, about the bank bailouts in 2008. So, I mean, you, you are a man for all seasons, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. It was quite a journey and a lot of adventures along the way. I'm sure you've had to say. Well, that's how I'd like to live my life. So I got a copy of Alan's book and, and I read it and before it was actually published in PDF form to, in order to make some comments. And, and I've got some other comments that people have made uh, about your book. Your book is Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz. And there's a tagline after that. Remind me of that tagline after. The Jewish mob, a family affair. There you go. And, and uh, uh, here's here's one from Avi Bash. He said, Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz is a gripping story of family and crime. Geik does a magnificent job expanding on familiar stories by adding personal insight obtained directly from the infamous characters portrayed throughout the book. Here's another one. Magnificent storytelling, masterfully written and engaging insight into the powerful Jewish crime syndicate and the role they played in 20th century organized crime. So a must have for any mob enthusiast. So folks, I'll have links to that book on the show notes. And, and as you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, you, you see a, co a cover of the copy and, and I'll have a link down there in the description of what we're going to talk about here. So Alan, uh, you know, let's, how'd you get started on this project? It, it's like a family history is my understanding. Yes, it, it came out as a family history. I never really intended to write it. Uh, it was just part of uh, a family uh, story. Mm. But about four years ago, a cousin of mine, a favorite cousin, called me and he was ecstatic. He insisted I go to the computer and go to a website. And I went to it. It was an organized crime website, which I don't even think I went to very much at the time. And there was a picture on the homepage of a 1930s era police lineup with the men with uh, fedora hats and yeah. you know you've seen a hundred oh yeah <laughs> and and i said okay so what he said my father's on the right and his father a favorite uncle of mine 20 years later i didn't recognize him in the picture yeah. from the 30s uh was a small time uh, criminal lovable but he had a long police record of uh, uh, uh bounced checks and mail fraud and larceny and 
all of that stuff. And I said, okay. And he said, look who's on the cover. My father, not Uncle George, not Uncle <laughs> Charlie, not Sammy Cassup, all the people who I wound up writing about. So I laughed. We had a good laugh over it. And a few weeks later, I went to see my sister, an attorney in Boston, who I told her the story of my uh, conversation with our cousin. And she said, you know, I have all those photos. Oh, really? Here. And I had nothing. Uh, I had traveled. I had no, and I looked through them and I, the photos just gave a certain life to that part of our family history. There mm -hmm. was Johnny Dioguardi with my father uh, and a whole line of men sitting at a table. And there was my father and Sammy Cassop, who I, we always thought was the most hardened criminal of all of them. <laughs> yeah. But there was pictures of Sammy Cassop with my um, mother uh, holding her around. He loved my mother. He loved all of us. And I said, somehow this should be put down on paper. And my cousins who knew of these people, but never knew them personally because they were younger, mm -hmm. they just insisted that I write it. So as I started writing it, one thing jumped out at me was I started with my uncle George and his lifelong co-conspirator and friend, Ruby Collard, just um, burglarizing the dry goods store on the Lower East Side. And as the story progressed, 40 years later, who would have thought but Ruby Collard would be the president of the Desert Inn and asking Howard Hughes to leave and Howard Hughes wound up buying it. And also, um, my Uncle George at that time would be Sam Giacana and Trigger Mike Coppola's stand-in in Las Vegas for the skim because both of them were on the blacklist and yeah. couldn't go to Las Vegas. So they both trusted and had lifelong relationships with Uncle George. So who would have thought from that very beginning of a small burglary that... But that was parallel to what happened to organized crime. That was sort of a metaphor for all of organized crime that started in the prohibition. They went through the depression. Mm -hmm. They went through World War II. And uh, uh, they thrived throughout all of those uh, uh, national challenges. So uh, I just kept writing it and becoming more interested in how all these pieces fit together, which I never really gave much thought to before. No, I have to say one more thing, Gary. Yeah. What amazed me when I started it was I looked for um, a context, for historical context. I mean, I knew the story of the killings of this one or that yeah. one, but I looked for a bigger context, and I found what I didn't even know existed, crime researchers and crime reporters and mm -hmm. podcasters. And yeah. uh, I didn't know that whole world existed. Yeah, it's, it's quite a world. It is getting bigger uh, and more detailed all the time. You know, as a, a friend of mine, FBI agent here in Kansas City, who who actually was the case agent on the big skimming case that started in Kansas City that took down Chicago, Cleveland and, and Milwaukee. And, and we were talking about the early days in Kansas City. We had a guy named uh, Nick Savella was the boss and it was all the Cosa Nostra. But then they also had a guy named Max Jabin and Morris Klein, who were really important in the gambling. And he said, yeah, he said, uh, uh, the Italians 
were the brawn and the Jewish guys were the brains here in Kansas City. <laughs> and so I think they're the same thing all over the United States. It's funny you said that because one of the characters in my story who I knew in my whole life, Johnny Ito, who was a fence, the least violent of all of them, but he had access to Mayor uh, Walker in the 20s and Mayor uh, uh, O'Dwyer uh, in the uh, 40s. And he was also selling jewelry to, high, uh, to, to everybody. And he was a friend of Frank Costello. And he claimed, and I believe him because he wouldn't lie about it, he said Frank Costello said they put Jews in as uh, the Jews were the um, labor union presidents because they had better table manners. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> A little bit more sophisticated. (laughs) No offense to any of my Sicilian Italian friends out there, but that's just kind of the way it was. And I think they'd all agree with that. (laughs) And and they're sort of gentle stereotypes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But your your Jewish gangster was not really always that gentle. It may may have had good table manners, but uh, there's a certain underground there, especially when it comes to murder incorporated. You're talking about your uncle killing Don Schultz, and, and, and he was really well known as an angry, violent, vicious guy. So, uh, you know, tell us some of those uh, some of those little stories that, that you dug up. Well, uh, Charlie killed Don Schultz in 1935. He got arrested in 1941 when Abrellis and... and they were all attacking the, uh, they all, a lot of them got arrested. He did 23 years in jail. And when he got out of jail, he was very close to my family because my father was one of the many, I assume, men who brought money to his family because my mm-hmm. father was a civilian. He was had no police record. They were concerned about uh, um, criminals coming and they just wanted to keep it as clean as possible. And my parents knew Charlie and his wife before they went to jail and after. And my brother was close to him because my brother was a detective and offered him some, uh, 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 what would you call it, uh, sort of, uh, he was, uh, he, he helped him if there were any parole mm-hmm. um, oh, issues. Yeah. And he always referred to me as his nephew and my brother as his nephew. And the man that I saw, I knew the man you were just describing, and that was certainly there. But the man I saw was uh, interesting. He had great insights into the criminal mind going back then. And uh, a lot of these people, uh, by the time I was an adult, they wanted what a lot of semi-retired people always long for, camaraderie. (laughs) And they had family. They saw us as family, and the stories came uh, and the, the reminiscence, and all I had to do was sit back. And years later, I interviewed my brother uh, after most of these people passed away because I wanted to get it, some kind of a record of it. And mm-hmm. so I was able to access that when I started writing this more recently. My brother passed away in 2008, but I was lucky to have our remembrances in some kind of a written form for the minor details of the story I wrote. But uh, Charlie uh, was, uh, uh, I could see when he walked into places, and now we're talking about 1970s, say the late 60s, early 70s, when he walked into a place, people knew who he was. Mm -hmm. And he had been in jail for 23 years. And yet, 
they treated him more as an equal than as uh, someone to fear or anything else. He was, all of them, including Maya Lansky, to me, they were just older Jewish men, like the men in my neighborhood who we all had great respect for. We would always call them Mr. Whatever their name was, we would never call them by their first name, except Charlie was always Uncle Charlie. But, mm-hmm. uh, what, what was Charlie's last name? Workman. Workman, okay. And, and, and so Charlie Workman, and, and was he, he was connected to Murder Incorporated, right? He was one, according to what I later read and what I heard from family members, he was one of the go-to guys who they called upon. And actually, they called upon him to uh, kill Dutch Schultz, who was uh, a big problem for them, but also a mob boss. So he must have been high up on the uh, go-to list. Yeah, he must have been. Now, how did that, I wonder how that went down. Now, the tie-ins, you know, Albert Anastasia was famous for this murder incorporated, but most of the killers that he recruited into that and used were Jewish guys, is my understanding. That's right. And a lot of them, well, there were Italians in it, actually Louis Capone, who wasn't related to Al Capone, who wound up getting the electric chair. Right. He was one of the few. Um, uh, They were Jewish guys who went and did the jobs and, they didn't call it Murder Incorporated until the uh, till they started rounding everyone else up. And one a enterprising a reporter for a yeah. New York newspaper, when they, they called it the combination. But once all these stories of how many people they actually killed, they called it Murder Incorporated and the name stuck forever after. Um, but Charlie got uh, turned in by one of the other members, Abrellis who wound up right. getting thrown out of a six-floor window <laughs> in the hotel in oh, the, what, what was the saying at the time? The canary could sing but couldn't fly? <laughs> Correct. That, that's right. And, you know, it was also a matter of fact in my family or that part of the family because I remember when I was much younger, we were in Coney Island on the boardwalk with a group of people and someone pointed to the building, which I believe still exists. Oh, really? geriatric center or senior citizen center pointed to the building and said, that's where Abe Rellis was thrown out of the window and he landed <laughs> over there. And I was nine years old. And I said, what do you mean? Uh, uh, and, uh, and those were the kinds of um, things I would overhear. Like, you mean someone threw someone out of, a, out of a story? Really? And it was said with a very matter of fact attitude. Interesting. Uh, that is interesting. Growing up in in that culture, I guess, and and where something like that would be matter of fact. Uh, yeah, so, it was it was sort of like the family could have been all in big band uh, musicians, talking <laughs> yeah, about the road or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, kind of during that, uh, when you're uh, when Charlie Workman went to jail and Abe Rella started ratting everybody out what was the kind of what was the uh, uh, mood in your family and and did you re- do you remember much of that or well i wasn't around when that happened when abrellis was uh informing on everybody but one of the people who i spoke to at some length about was the fence who i mentioned johnny eater who was right in city hall for almost his whole 
career in uh, Brooklyn and New York. He, and that, that was an interesting story. And I told about it in the, in the book, but uh, he was close to um, William O'Dwyer, who was probably one of the more interesting characters. William O'Dwyer came from Ireland. He was a laborer. He became a policeman. And then he became the Brooklyn district attorney. All he wanted to do was be mayor of New York, which he wound up being after mm -hmm. the war. But uh, as, as the DA, they, he wound up, he put out stories about all these murder incorporated guys who were informing on each other when it wasn't always true. Johnny Eden knew that this was going on, so did other people, but it made everybody so nervous that they came in to inform too, because back then they had the death sentence. Yeah. And a number of them did get the death sentence and did get executed at Sing Sing, um, uh, Lepke and uh, uh, um, Uncle Charlie's uh, partner on the Dutch Schultz hit was Mendy Weiss. And Mendy yeah. Weiss got executed for another murder. So it was serious business and everybody started to come in to inform. And it was really a ruse by uh, um, uh, William O'Dwyer, the DA. Uh, very interesting. He was, uh, he was uh, Thomas Dewey before there was a Thomas Dewey. Huh? He was a, uh -huh. he was a mob buster. He was going to make his political career uh, out of, on the backs of mobsters. Uh, actually, he turned up a few years later in another role. Uh, as soon as uh, they cleaned up Murder Incorporated and it was gone very quickly, he joined the military. He went to Italy and I think he was an intelligence officer that he became part of the Allied Commission in Italy. And he came back and became, ran for mayor and won. And at that time, the, they were trying to get arms to the people fighting in Israel. Uh -huh. And the way they got it was they owned the docks, the Jewish and Italian mobsters and the Irish were a large part of the workforce on the docks and they hated the British. So they were more than happy to help get <laughs> all this weaponry. And there was Mayor O'Dwyer, an Irish, an Ireland born mayor who could speak to the Irish workers and mm -hmm. say, we're on the side of the uh, people fighting for the state of Israel. And they, the amount of weaponry they got off the uh, port of New York was immense. And Johnny Eater told me that uh, Mayor O'Dwyer said to him, these days I'm more of a Jew than you are, Johnny. <laughs> that is really interesting. Uh, kind of remember that. And, and folks, you need to maybe go watch Exodus or something to, to kind of get a, a sense of the history and the relationship yeah. between the British and the people in Israel, the Jewish people in Israel, and, and trying to form a state. And the British, they want to hang on to their, what, what they call it, protectorate, almost like a colony over there. And, and they finally start easing them out. But the Jewish people needed guns uh, in order to help get the British out and deal with the Arabs at the time. So it was an uh, interesting bit of history there that we're connected to. And there was another layer of difficulty, and that was that the United States sanctioned any arms going to the Israeli fighters, as the British did. But they both supported the Arabs with weaponry because they wanted the Arab oil. Right. It already started. They had to fight against a sanction. People in the United States did go to jail for um, violating uh, the whatever the um, sanction was against uh, Israel. And so it was a serious offense. So they had to fight uh, for the state, but they also had to fight the British and American governments who were 
decidedly on the side of the Arabs at the time. Yeah, interesting. Now, uh, at what point in time after then Harry Truman recognized Israel? And that uh, was a surprise. He recognized them almost immediately. And I, I had a, uh, a fortuitous uh, uh, relationship. My late father-in-law, the uh, father of my late wife, was the first fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force, Roland mm. Art. He was a pilot in the Marine Corps during World War II. He was a, uh, um, uh, he, he, he left Hungary because of that, the anti-Semitism and, mm-hmm. and he joined the Marines and he wound up being the first fighter pilot. But he was stationed in secret bases after World War II in Italy. And he was, he witnessed and was uh, a recipient of the mob's effect in Italy. They protected the secret bases from mm. the British who wanted them to be closed down. And during World War II, the, of all the countries in Europe, the country that was most supportive and protective of the Jews was Italy. Mm. And when we hear the expression stand-up person, which we all know, he's a yeah. stand-up guy, imagining an Italian family in Italy uh, under the Gestapo who are not telling the Gestapo where the Jews are. Yeah. And women and children, that's, that's stand-up. Yeah, that's stand-up, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think especially in southern Italy and Sicily, they had a long tradition of standing up against any authority that came in from the outside. That's that's bred into their bones. And also they had a long history of dealing with Jews and Phoenicians and people, right. people because those were the first seafarers. And they put down in southern Italy and surely in Sicily. So they had a history going back 1,500 years. Oh, I didn't realize that. Interesting. Well, all around that Mediterranean and, and of course, the uh, uh, Jewish people were a huge part of that whole Mediterranean trade going back and really what produced our modern society was uh, was a trade around the Mediterranean because that was the Western world at the time. Absolutely. And so much history here. So it's uh, what about any other organized criminal? You got another story or two out of your book there that uh, you'd like to tell people, kind of entice them to want to buy this book? <laughs> well, uh, as I, I mentioned um uh, Uncle George was an interesting character. As I mentioned, he and Ruby started off uh, with a, uh, or the, at least my story starts off with a dry goods burglary, and they become major players in Las Vegas. But the story of Havana was interesting, too, because in the 30s, Maya Lansky uh, pretty much bought into Havana and paid off Fulgencio Batista, who was Mm -hmm. on and off the uh, military dictator of Cuba. And the Cleveland syndicate, which my uncle and Ruby both became big parts of, uh, they wound up running the casino at uh, the uh, Havana Nacional. And uh, I got, I found the F, even though I read different people were, um, given credit for running the casino, the FBI reports. I did get a lot of Freedom of Information Act reports from the FBI, and there it was, Uncle George and Sam Tucker from the uh, um, Cleveland Syndicate were the major players at the Havana Nacional. And they sensed that the um, game was over for gambling Mm -hmm. because while Meyer Lansky ran it all, he was – around, or as the story I've been told, and it, 
history bears it out. Meyer Lansky was uh, around Batista and the generals. Uncle George, Sam Tucker, and the people running the casino were out in the street. They loved the night, and they could see that Castro was winning the war. Mm. In the street, the people were, um, uh, whenever there was a, a, a victory in the east coast of Cuba, the people were thrilled about it, so they mm. wanted to get out. And also, they had built the stardust in Las yeah. Vegas, and they said, why be here with all of this insecurity and uh, of who's going to run and who's going to win when we have this cash cow in Las Vegas. And luckily at that time, the Las Vegas or the Nevada uh, Gaming Commission put out a ruling that if you're invested, they, they didn't want to leave because they didn't want to leave Maya Lansky uh, uh, walk away from him. That would have taken that. And that was some of Godfather too, actually. Right. But they were lucky because uh, they didn't want to leave. But the ruling was, if you were invested in Las Vegas, you can't be invested in Havana. So, boy, they looked for someone to buy them out quickly and so they could keep their Las Vegas interests and get out gracefully out of Cuba. And they found a guy two months before the revolution happened. They got out with all their cash. <laughs> wow. Havana two months before. And the guy who got stuck with it was himself a scammer of sorts. And yeah. He claimed to be a golf partner of the then President Kennedy. Uh, uh. <laughs> uh, uh, that was uh, a story that had many different tellings of that story that I've read. But that was one that the FBI documents bore out, the one that I heard when I was much younger. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Las Vegas was was in Bill. You know, uh, Bugsy Siegel was already out there, and and Gus Greenbaum and and Mo Dalis from Cleveland, and, and then these guys from Havana sell out and get out early, and and get it's like selling a house in two thousand and seven right. in the United States. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, yeah, interesting. That is great. That's a good story there. That's really, uh, you know, part of the you know the modern day organized crime that was the route you know through gambling that prohibition through gambling you know they start out with the carpet joints and and go to uh throughout the united states and then also the uh, havana and then go to las vegas which you know that story tells itself that's that's a huge story just the las vegas alone and for the first time it was legal yeah. These guys who had been spent by that point uh, uh, from 1925 to 1950 building out illegal gambling casinos, <laughs> yeah. and bribing local officials in every county in Ohio and Kentucky, all of a sudden they had legal gambling and they still had to skim. So they invented skimming. They said, <laughs> yeah. have that before. Now they had to, being it was legal, they had to uh, pay taxes. So they invented skimming, uh, uh, which uh, we've heard a lot about and saw movies about. Right. And everybody hates to pay taxes, especially <laughs> mob <laughs> guys. <laughs> yeah, that uh, um, was carpet joints. I have a, a an author that, that has a book, a real detailed book about uh, gambling before Las Vegas. And, and he goes into all those carpet joints and, and he, and he told me, he said, you know, when they started building up Las Vegas and it got popular, the, the local people out there, they didn't know how to run a casino. They didn't know how to make money in a casino. He said, but the people have been running the carpet joints throughout the United States. 
they got them, they brought them out and, and they were gravitated to that where you, and they knew how to make money. And of course the rest is history as we see. And even years later when uh, Ruby Collard told Howard Hughes people to leave and he turned around and bought the desert in and five or six other properties, they, he made the mistake of leaving the same people in charge of the casino, the people who were skimming for years. <laughs> yeah. And they cared less about how it used than they did about the mob. Yeah. And one of them told me my first trip to Las Vegas in 1976, uh, one of the uh, casino uh, uh, pit bosses, uh, Peanuts, his name was, he came from Cleveland. I was there with my father. And he said, what did we care about how it used in these retired FBI agents? Yeah. We were as blind as we could. We, were, we would have never done that when the mob guys were in <laughs> And so right. Howard Hughes left two years later. Yeah, uh, There's some discrepancies in that story, too, but um, uh, that's the one uh, that I heard firsthand. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. All right, Alan Geick, that's, this has been a great interview, and it's an interesting book. I, I read it and uh, went through it, and it's a, it's a really great read, guys. So I really appreciate you coming on, Alan. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. I appreciate it. All right. Um, repeat the name of your book, Alan. Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair. All right, folks, be sure and get that. And don't forget, look out for motorcycles when you're out on the road. And if you feel like you or a relative or somebody you care about has a problem with PTSD, they're a vet, go to the uh, Veterans Administration website and get their hotline and, and uh, get some help there. I really appreciate it. You can always support me on uh, Venmo or buy me a cup of coffee and and uh, tune in. Tell a friend about Tell a friend about this show. That's how I get more listeners, more listeners I get the more I like it. Thanks a lot, you guys.